We're going to begin a new series uh, this morning. We're going to look at one of my favorite Old Testament books in the story of Esther. Esther is one of only two books of the Bible that is named after a woman. Um, For you ladies, I think it's important to remind you in these times that God absolutely showers the scriptures with your dignity, with your worth, with your value. And I think Esther is a wonderful example of that. I'm going to give you a little background. Esther is one of the last books written in the Old Testament. Uh, We're uncertain of its author. It could have been, as some scholars say, her cousin, Mordecai, though we don't know that for sure. We know it was written two to 3,000 years ago. So it is in every way considered to be ancient in origin. Jews in particular take a liking to Esther because it records a number of feasts in the Feast of Purim in particular. We'll see in upcoming weeks that the plot line kind of hinges in places um, on those feasts and the events surrounding those uh, feasts. I have read that no commentaries, commentary being when someone comments on the scripture, usually uh, somebody uh, very bright and and having uh, undertaken a substantial education, um, that not a single one was produced in the first seven centuries of the church, 700 years on the book of Esther. It's really remarkable. John Calvin didn't touch it. Martin Luther uh, didn't even touch it. In fact, he said, to quote him, it shouldn't have even been in the Bible to begin with, the book of Esther. Um, What does the rest of the Bible, maybe something else in the Bible, uh, says something complimentary of the book? Nothing at all. Nothing is quoted from the book of Esther. And uh, in one of the best commentaries on the book, a lady by the name of Karen Jobes says uh, this, it's probably not a good idea to preach or teach through the whole book of Esther, end quote. So if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 1, verse 1, that is where uh, we will uh, gladly begin. What does the scripture tell us, by the way, about the Bible? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So all of it's valuable. That's where we begin. We're going to start uh, this morning with a historical figure named Xerxes. Anybody see the movie 300? Um, I wouldn't recommend it to you necessarily for a number of reasons. I saw it myself. Um, But this is what we read in Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, which that in the Greek means Xerxes. That's the character depicted um, in the movie uh, 300, among others. Um, He's the guy on the throne at the very end, larger than life. Um, Xerxes was um, a great king, not great as in benevolent, kind, um, charitable. Uh, He was great in that he gained more influence, uh, vast power, uh, than, than nearly all other kings. Um, he towers over the ancient world 
at the time of this narrative, he certainly towers over the story of Esther. At this point, he's in his mid-30s because we'll soon read that he's in the third year of his reign and he took over at age 32. Might I suggest that you not um, be a king in your (laughs) mid-30s? Because I'm a pastor in my mid-30s, or at least I tend to think of 37 belonging to the mid-30s, not the latter 30s. But I don't even know that I'd recommend pastoring a church at this age, much less um, a nation, running a nation. But this is what he does. And when Esther enters the scene, we won't read about her this morning. She'll come later. But we'll see that she's about 15 to 20 years younger than uh, yet than Xerxes. Xerxes is talked about at length by a Greek historian named Herodotus. We'll refer to his writings uh, throughout this series. Um, We know that he grew up, Xerxes did, very, very wealthy. Um, The way history was typically told in this time, those who won the battles would hire the historian. And so much of history from the ancient world is very, very biased, political, partisan, national. Okay, it's meant to favor um, a, a particular people group. But Herodotus is very unique in that he's very objective. Uh, he's very factual in the way that he records history. And so much of his work did revolve around this character, Xerxes. Where does this story set, uh, take place? What's the, the context? This is... Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, or satraps. Now, the names have, have changed over time. I didn't, I'm not going to put a map on the screen for you this morning, but really, um, his uh, kingdom expanded from Sudan um, up to Pakistan and all the way over to Greece. So it was a very extensive, large area. Um, We could go into the geography, but I'll just save some time by saying the big idea is that he's the most powerful man on the earth, okay? And um, as you know, his territory was, for the most part, the world in that day. I mean, Chicago didn't have a lot of uh, inhabitants, okay, at that time. So he kind of lorded over it all. And his father, Uh, Darius was his name, was a legendary king in in his own right. Some 35 years he ruled. And Xerxes expanded on his father Darius' power um, by taking people over, by conquering them, assimilating them into Persian culture. So really the kingdom of the Persians is multi-ethnic. It's multi-racial. It's um, multi-lingual. It's multi-religious. It's a big melting pot of people that have been conquered. If this father-son team had any religious devotion whatsoever, it would be Zoroastrianism, which is in every way a pagan uh, religion. Uh, All we're saying is that they in no way worship the God of the Bible, not even close Uh, They lived in this city called Susa, which is in modern-day Iran. So we're talking about a people living away from Jerusalem, away from God's people, um, away from the temple, away from the priesthood, away from 
um, the presence of God on earth. And if um, this question came to our minds, is God working among other nations in the Bible? I think this story gives us a confident yes to that question. Is God outside of Jerusalem? Ever? We would say according to the story of Esther, absolutely, yes, even in pagan, godless places, God works. He moves. He is. He dwells. Um, He changes human hearts. So, I would add uh, that in this day, kings were considered to be like gods. They had multiple wives. They had a huge uh, harem, they call it. Uh, where women were absolutely mistreated, abused. Uh, Kings in this society made men like Hugh Hefner look like saints. They absolutely did. And so, um, whatever the king's pleasure was, his pleasure alone, he had it at his discretion. Um, It was self-serving. It was sickening. And this man, his father, Darius, hands this enormous empire to his 32-year-old son. What could possibly go wrong, right? So a spoiled, wealthy child who grew up in the palace, never worked a day in his life, took over the throne, had not been to war, had not struggled in any way. If, according to custom, um, is true, he likely didn't even meet his dad until age five because the mama raised the kids in this culture. And so imagine one 32-year-old man rising up with such power that he can turn, in present-day terms, Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan into one nation. It's huge. This is a very affluent, powerful kingdom. It's hard to overstate the level of power that this man has both been given and acquired himself. You may wonder, how did he get his uh, communications out to all these people in various, uh, with various languages? Um, he invented the world's first postal system, believe it or not. In fact, before it was the USPS's motto, this was Xerxes' motto for his organization that he began. Neither snow, nor rain, nor gloom of night stays these valiant couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And when he'd give a decree, did you recognize that phrase, Carrie? Carrie worked for USPS for some time. They'd think it was a word from God because that's how it was viewed. Xerxes even called himself, to sound familiar, the king of all 
kings. And he ruled over roughly 3 million square miles. You can plant a lot of food plots on 3 million square miles. This was roughly the size of the United States of America. And he ruled over it all. Verse 2. In those days when King Xerxes sat on this royal throne in Susa, modern-day Iran, the citadel in his third year of uh, reigning. Okay. Citadel. What about it? Palaces were on hilltops. It was called the Acropolis. Um, This means high point. So he sits high and lifted up visually. He's purportedly closer to God. Um, He's way higher than commoners, farmers, fishermen. They gaze up at him day to day. And indeed, they do gaze at him because history records that he was good looking. Dark, tall, handsome. Um, I'm not certain that we can connect tall and dark to handsome necessarily. I think short and wide can be just as attractive. But that's what history records. He was also protected. He, as uh, the film 300 uh, kind of depicted, was surrounded by 10,000 of his closest military men, and they were called the Immortals. The Immortals. Now, I don't care what your team name is. If you, like, pull up against the Immortals, that's a scary day, right? In battle or kickball or whatever it is. The Immortals. I mean, that's frightening. And so this is the name that they are given. And might we suggest that if your security detail could fill up a small stadium, 10,000 of these men, that's kind of a big entourage. And they travel with him, and they defend him, and they'd war with, with him or for him, and they'd gladly die on his behalf. And he also has 2,000 uh, horsemen and also 2,000 lancers who sit on top of those horsemen. Now let me tell you about his throne. His throne symbolized everything that he valued. It was big. It was made of costly materials. It was ornate. It was beautiful. It was glorious. It portrayed him as a god. And he loved his throne so much that he would request it travel with him. So he would sit on top of a mountain watching his minions fight for him while held by men seated upon his throne, as was depicted in the film 300. Some of it wasn't far off. A question might be asked, what does he do with all the loot that he acquires from the surrounding nations? Does he serve the poor? Does he care for orphans? Um, Does he love the marginalized, the disenfranchised? And the answer, clearly, according to the text, is an emphatic no. What does he do with his money and therefore power? Um, He, in the first three, we read, gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. 
Xerxes, with the resources that he took, he and his men took, from pillaging, raping, conquering other people groups, was used to throw lascivious, self-centered, and promoting parties. And some of the largest the world has ever seen. What was the largest party you've ever been to? Was it a wedding? Was it a wedding reception? Was it maybe a 50th wedding anniversary? Because as we study Esther, we're going to see a number of parties scattered through this book. This is the first one. You may wonder, how does Xerxes keep all of these people who speak all these different languages in line? How does he prevent an insurrection? How does he keep a coup at bay? Well, the answer is he feeds them all the protein their hearts could possibly desire. He gives them to drink all of the wine that they could never afford. He hands them the most beautiful women that have been stolen from their husbands. And he gives them lavish gifts of gold and silver. And they will do then anything that he asks them to do because he cared for them. These are his tax dollars at work. This was the party to end all parties. Commentators tell us that his military leaders alone numbered 15,000. If you're uh, in the hospitality industry, if you like to plan events, could you imagine being responsible for a meal feeding 15,000 people? Can you imagine being responsible for the cookies at that meal alone? 15,000 cookies? Transportation to boot. Housing to boot. Rooms, security, entertainment, live music. A harem at everybody's disposal. Flowers, place settings. All of it organized. All of it free of charge. All of it, thanks to Xerxes. And we say, that's just disgusting. Drunk old men, ruling, reigning, abusing girls, spending money, gambling, feasting. This is, this is like the ultimate primer for a Me Too movement that never happened. How many of you, were you to be honest, nobody raise your hand, would be happy to attend this party? How many of you get your jollies from the tabloids of high society? Watching shows, following certain stars. Where are they going and, and, and what are they doing? 
Why would we even care to do that? Here's why. Because there's something in the human heart that is fascinated by power and by money and by everything else that power and money can bring. Can we just say a prayer right now midstream here? Lord, condition we, your people, full of the Holy Spirit to avoid not only evil, but the appearance of evil and thoughts pertaining to evil. Lord, give us a desire for holiness. God, let us not only see you as Savior and Lord, but our treasure and joy and one who is to be adored, forsaking all others. Lord, help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you think, how long do you think this party lasted? This is crazy. Esther 1.4. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. How many days are in a year? 365, roughly what is half of 365? 186 months. This party lasted. See, for some of us, six months is, is the time off we need to take in between parties that we host at our homes. This thing lasted six months, 15,000 people. If it started in July, it would encapsulate the 4th, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. It's an all-inclusive resort for half of a year. Why does Xerxes do this? Because he loves people, because he's nice, because he's generous. Verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory. See, that's a worship word. Here's what's really going on. Everybody come and see the glory of the king. He's high. He's exalted. He's seated on a throne. We're going to gather people around from all the nations that he rules. Get the playbill here. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to sing. We're going to play like you've never played before. And the whole time, great Xerxes will receive your glory and your honor and your praise. Maybe I'm off here, but I think the glory was meant for another king. This man thinks he's Jesus. And church family, if we're again honest, there is something in each of our human hearts that covets a throne. That covets subjects. To lord over. How many dads in the room like me have a throne in your living room, a chair that nobody else sits in, called a recliner? 
How many of you have a nice bucket seat in your car that heats up? And another one you can warm your muffin in on the way to work. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying it's very, very possible that the only difference between Xerxes and I and you is the amount of resources that we have at our disposal. How many of us would make similar life decisions? There's something inside of us that wants to be the king. There's something in us that wants all the glory. Verse 5, and when these days were completed, six months of partying over, can you imagine what the cleanup from this party looks like? Miley Cyrus is over in the corner like crying. This was just too much. This is out of control. How many of you don't raise your hand? But you would say, I've lived, I've tried that kind of life. I've woken up two states over with a lampshade on my head, not knowing what happened. How many of you would say this would take even more courage? I still think that might be fun. When the days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small. So this is everybody. Scholars estimate 50,000 people. This is more people than live in Wausau. A feast lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after six months, the king opens up the party to the peasants. The normal citizens get a one-week national holiday and people go into a palace. Ooh, there's the throne. Ooh, there's the crown jewels. And this is an opportunity for poor, illiterate people, commerce, to get a free tour and to think highly of their king, Xerxes. Verses 6 through 8. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen. Why is violet or purple significant? It was the hardest dye to obtain in the land. Seems to me like it would be the same cost to mix blue and red as it would be to sell purple. But apparently not. It was more complicated than that. And so most people had maybe even yet to see this foreign color that was only reserved in the homes of the most affluent. And there were silver rods. The curtain rods were made of silver. I mean, you say that would be nice to have so much silver left over that you made your curtain rods out of it. And marble pillars. How many of you, instead of the the twisty floor joist supporters that run from the concrete to the to the to the floor of your home instead have marble pillars. Probably very few of us, if any at all, I might guess. Also, couches of gold and silver. That's just crazy. 
And how many of you would just sit on that just for the experience? I know I would. I would rub my fanny all across that thing. A gold couch for seating for 50,000 people. Can you picture that down the hill, some are hunting and fishing for survival, trying to feed their families, and Xerxes nearby is hosting everybody on gold couches, mother of pearl, precious stones, pavement made of porphyry, which apparently is purple quartz. The floor is made out of fine gems of stones. What about the menu? Drinks were served in gold vessels. I have read that when the guests would enter this particular party, that the cup that they were given a drink out of would have been worth more than they would have made in their entire lifetimes. I bet they had a problem with theft (laughs) that night, don't you? And the royal wine... Just imagine for a minute, okay, just this will be fun. Just concede this, that a fisherman and a farmer would be exposed to an open bar for the first time in their life. How many of you have had an open bar, seen an open bar at a wedding or a reception at some point in your life? Okay. What happens when you have an open bar at your wedding? It typically does not end well. Okay. Groomsmen start fighting with each other at some point if it goes late. Bride might be crying. You know, you got a missing distant cousin somewhere on the property. These are people who've never seen an open bar, and they're gifted an open bar, and insanity ensues. We read, and drinking was according to the edict. So now we see that there's a drinking rule. And here's the drinking rule. There is no compulsion. The drinking rule is there's no drinking rule. Have all you want. Drink wherever, whenever, with whomever you choose. 50,000 people huddled around an open bar. How many of you sincerely have had days like this? Maybe it wasn't six months. Maybe it wasn't a week. But a night with no limitations, no restrictions, just full-throated sin. Drunkenness, gluttony, perversion, overindulgence. You may never have had a physical harem, but how many of you have had what Xerxes had in reality digitally? You say, but that's not a real person. That is absolutely a real person. People who oftentimes are victimized, who are abused for others' enjoyment, who are manipulated into that way of living, 
who could do nothing else to earn that kind of income, who are single mothers trying to provide from a family who, for a family who are trapped in that lifestyle, we condemn Xerxes for coveting glory from everybody, and yet glory is what we use Facebook and Instagram to get. Here are the photos of what I'm doing because the whole world needs to see what I'm up to because I'm important, I'm significant. I'm essential, essential, and central. There are things that I'm doing that are glorious. You need to see them. You need to praise me. Honor me by posting on my wall. Comment, please. Like me, love me. The times have changed. The hearts have not changed. It's easy to look at such a fantastical story and say this would never happen. These people are nasty. But if we're honest, many of us would say I've been there. I've done that. I understand how sinful people can be when they're given an opportunity. The king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. That's what the Bible says. 15,000 military men for six months, 50,000 commoners for one week, doing as they desired by edict from the king. How many of you gals would love to attend that party? Here's a question in conclusion. What's missing from this story thus far? Or rather, we might say who is missing from this story? Well, God is missing from the story. And God will continue to appear missing from this story. He's not mentioned once in the book of Esther. In fact, if you read the whole book, you'll sense that it's almost godless in nature. God doesn't appear. He doesn't speak. There are no angels. There are no miracles. There are no quotes from other books of the Bible. Nobody repents. Nobody prays. There's nothing supernatural at all. But let me ask you this. How many of you would say that's a lot like my life, to be honest? Faith, to me, is believing in what I've hoped for, not believing in what I know by seeing it to be true. 
Faith is being, for me, sure or certain of what I have not seen. You're like, I've never seen a miracle. I've, I've read about them. I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've never had a dream. I've never had a, a vision. I've prayed. It has not been answered at times. My story is Esther's story. I live in a time in which dirty, rich men, in some ways, rule the world. And I'm grinding it out. And I'm wondering, does God even exist? Is he some absentee landlord? Maybe Xerxes is really God. Is, is God's throne not above his? And, and do you not, God, see? And do you not care? And will you not act? I mean, how many of you in your darkest hour have had thoughts like that? Where is God in the story of Esther? Well, we will see as we examine it that he weaves in and out of the entire book. He's silhouetted. I assure you, and, and God's works in Esther's life and often in our lives is not through some visible hand of a miracle. It's through his invisible hand of providence. Let's pray. Lord, if you are sovereign and good, and we know that you are, Lord, we just pray that you would continue even when we can't sense your nearness, even when we feel that you're a ways off to know that you rule, that you reign, that you're sovereign, that you're over all time, that you're over all places, and that you're hidden throughout the details of history and that you're hidden throughout our lives. Xerxes was Darius' son. Jesus, you are God's son. Xerxes never tasted poverty. Lord, you were poor and had no place to lay your head. Xerxes used his power to abuse women. Jesus, you valued women. You held them in the highest esteem. Xerxes killed millions. Jesus, you gave your life to save millions. Xerxes sat on his throne in pride. Jesus, you left your throne in humility and came down to earth as a man. 
You identify with us in our pain, Lord. Xerxes threw the party of all parties until the day when yours will supplant his. When we will sit with you and feast in heaven forever, an event in which no unjust actions will take place. Where all the glory and honor and praise belongs to the king of all kings, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Lord, we love you. You love us. You are present. You do care. And we look forward to seeing how you move in Esther's life. In the name of Jesus, we pray.